Hey, it's Curious City's Jason Mark, and a few weeks ago, Curious City held a live event at the famed Carol's Pub in Chicago's Uptown neighborhood. We had two fantastic guests. Chicago journalist, editor, historian, raconteur, live music fan, and photographer of birds, manholes, and other urban oddities. Please give a warm Carol's welcome to Robert Lorzell. Thank you. Thanks. Just to my left, to your right, please welcome beer and bar historian, the executive director of the Chicago Museum, Liz Garibay. Hello. Hello. Robert and Liz talked about two topics near and dear to the hearts of Curious City fans. The history of Uptown as an entertainment district. This worker was doing double duty. He was both a bartender and a grave digger. (laughs) And he said he should be getting uh, extra pay because he kept having to run back and forth between the graveyard and the saloon. And the vaunted place of beer and taverns in the history of Chicago. Back when Chicago first started going in the early 1830s, Uh, We already had a number of bars, and they were all along the Chicago River. And you already had this concept of a local tavern because, God forbid, you get into a canoe to go to the bar. We chose Carol's not just because it's in Uptown, but because it's the last vestige of a thriving country music scene that flourished in the neighborhood for decades thanks to an influx of people from Appalachia after World War II. Appropriately enough, our music for the evening was provided by the Hoyle Brothers, and you'll hear them throughout the podcast. And she tried to raise me right, but I refused. Well, I turned 21 in prison doing a life The event was sold out, and Carol's was absolutely packed. And it was really something to see so many people come out on a Wednesday night to celebrate Chicago history and the work we do at Curious City. So consider this week's episode as your ticket inside as we bring you some highlights of the night. Pour yourself a cold one and get ready to discover some things you never knew about Uptown and about Chicago's beer scene. That's next. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts. When Robert told the audience he was going to give us the history of Uptown from the beginning, I didn't think he was speaking geologically, but that's exactly how he kicked things off. I'm going to give you the short version here. About 12,000 years ago, Lake Michigan was formed by melting glaciers. Those glaciers laid a sandbar that started from about where Carroll's Pub sits in Uptown at Clark and Leland and extended 17 miles south, pretty much the length of Chicago. Now, that sandbar formed a ridge, which was just a little higher than the surrounding ground. That ridge became a trail that Native people used, and it eventually became a road for white settlers to travel all the way to Green Bay, Wisconsin, which is why Clark Street was first called Green Bay Road. Now that you have a little background, let me turn it over to Robert Lorzell, recorded live at Carroll's Pub. 
And so when people are traveling on this in stagecoaches in the early 1800s, they need somewhere to stop for a drink or for some food. And so roadhouses started opening saloons where you could get beer or even perhaps stay the night. So one of the people I talked to about this, John Holden, who was the president of the Uptown Historical Society when such a thing existed. <laughs> and here's uh, what he told me about this. Well, they were uh, very essential uh, parts of the traveler's uh, world. They were basically way stations for people that were on longer journeys to stop in and get uh, uh, food and drink. Sometimes there was also occasionally entertainment as part of the, the package. In the earliest days, it was also a place where you could uh, get your transportation, that is your horse fed and, and, and watered. This fact that we had higher land here also created a different trend that's relevant to this, which is that a bunch of cemeteries opened here around 1860 because it was higher ground in the countryside, uh, way outside the city limits. You wouldn't uh, want to drown if you were dead. <laughs> right. No, and so I asked John Holden about this too, and here's what he had to say. Where uh, Rose Hill is probably one of the highest points in the city of Chicago, it's very high land there. And so is um, the area that uh, St. Boniface and, uh, and Graceland are in. They're basically at the top of that, that ridge that slopes downward toward the lakeshore. So those graveyards attracted more business to the roadhouses. And when people would come out from the city to bury someone at Graceland Cemetery or St. Boniface or Rose Hill or Calvary up in Evanston, it was a bit of a hike to get out here. And so while they were out here, after the burial or the visiting the, their loved ones at the cemetery, they would often stop at one of these saloons and roadhouses. Yeah, in they, fact, the Tribune started calling them cemetery saloons. Cemetery saloons. So you got this ridge that becomes a thoroughfare for travelers, and then these roadhouses start popping up to serve them. And we also have these cemeteries on higher lands, and then saloons pop up to serve the mourners. But Right around where we are right now at Carroll's, this is literally where all that was happening. So do you have some stories about like, uh, you know, specific bars and watering holes that were sort of like right here in the 1800s? Yeah. So in the early days, the most famous place out here was called the Sunnyside. You may know of Sunnyside Avenue. The street's actually named after the, the tavern hotel that was there. It was on the east side of Clark Street, just north of Montrose and uh, took up a lot of land there. And for a while in the 1860s, there was a racetrack across the street from it where they had horse races. And so I found old newspaper articles about this and it sounds like a Wild West saloon almost. One of the newspapers said there were hot words and hard fights and sensational <laughs> poker games. When we see places like this sunny side in film or on TV and it made me think of Deadwood. There's always this, this colorful owner of these establishments, a guy who has a, a smile when he's giving you a drink, but he'll knife yeah. you in the back. Was that the case <laughs> with well, the Sunnyside? Yeah, the Sunnyside went through various owners over the years, but in the 1860s, it was Samuel Cap Hyman. He was a notorious gambler in Chicago who would go around whipping out his pistol and threatening to kill people. And just to couple of months before he took over the sunny side, he'd been in the news because his wife, who was a brothel owner named Annie Stafford, had thrown him down some stairs. Wait, he threw her down the stairs no. or she threw him she, down she the stairs? She threw him down the stairs. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that, that's better. <laughs> that's better. 
I shouldn't laugh at anybody being thrown down the stairs, but you know, yeah. the guy who goes around shooting people, you know, he gets tossed down the stairs. So it's 1872, and this area was not officially part of Chicago. So when did it officially actually become part of the city? Well, back then, this was part of Lakeview Township, which was essentially a suburb, or if you want to think of it as the countryside outside of the city, and then it got annexed by the city in 1889. So then it becomes part of Chicago, and that was around the time the Sunnyside became more of an outdoor concert venue. They called themselves Sunnyside Park. Yeah, if you could think of it, something like Ravinia almost, where they had uh, orchestra concerts and operas out there. And there was one concert that had 40,000 people at the Sunnyside showing up for one big concert with 2,000 singers and musicians performing. It sounds like half of the population of Chicago (laughs) at that time was out at that show. Uh, That's incredible. But Cap Hyman wasn't the only colorful proprietor at the time, and the Sunnyside wasn't the only famous roadhouse. So Robert turned our attention to a saloon run by a guy named Charles Pops Morse. That place was on the corner of what's now Broadway and Lawrence, and more than a century later, Chicagoans still go there for cocktails and entertainment. It's called the Green Mill. Robert found a building permit that dates all the way back to 1897. But unlike today, it wasn't known for jazz, but for boxing. Even though prize fights were illegal in Chicago at the time, boxers were known to train there. However, Pops wasn't long for this world. He died in 1908, and that's when a Greek immigrant named Tom Chamalis took the place over and started making big changes. In 1914, he tore down the roadhouse and built a new venue, which was called Green Mill Gardens. This was at a time when cabarets and and, uh, fancy gardens for outdoor entertainment were trendy, and this was one of the biggest ones. It was much bigger than the Green Mill Jazz Club that we know today. Uh, It extended for an entire block all the way from Broadway over to Magnolia with a big outdoor garden in the back. And the star attraction in these early days was a singer and violinist named Isabella Patricola, a Sicilian immigrant. Uh, Like Madonna and Cher, sometimes she went by just one name. People called her Patricola. And... She also reminds me a little bit of Andrew Bird, not her musical style, but just the fact that she would sing and uh, play violin while she was singing. I guess this was uh, considered hot stuff in uh, 1914. I, I, I've seen worse. I'd, see, I'd pay to see that. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So the, uh, the Green Mill Gardens had a, a windmill on the roof, which was a way of reminding people of the Moulin Rouge in uh, Paris. Moulin Rouge means red mill, and this was Chicago's version of it. I'm not sh- totally sure why they chose the green color, but they were obviously trying to make people think of the Parisian nightlife. Um, I interviewed Dave Jamillo, who is the current owner of the Green Mill, and he talked about what he knows about what it was like in the in these olden days. A guy could not come in at all unless he was in like a suit coat, you know, and the women had to have gloves on. I mean, everyone was dressed like 
it was a fancy place to go. You know, it was big shit at the time. <laughs> uh, you guys made me bleep that when I used it in the That's WBZ right. story. So we're like just about up to really 1919, 1920. This is when prohibition kicks in and these places, this is what they've been doing for 20, 30, 40, 50 years serving booze. So what happened to the Green Mill Gardens and places like it when well, prohibition started in 1920? Well, they stayed open as restaurants and cabarets with live entertainment. Technically, legally at least, they stopped selling booze. Technically. Uh, Here's how things often worked. Customers would bring in their own booze, hiding it in flasks inside their jackets, and they would buy what was called a setup from the bar or the green mill, um, which was a glass with ice in it and some ginger ale or mineral water to mix your own drinks at the table. Now, there was a Tribune reporter who went into the green mill and then he was shocked when he got an exorbitant bill for $40 just for some uh, soft drinks, which he hadn't even bothered to you know, mix the booze. This seemed to be some kind of scam they were pulling on customers. So he refused to pay. A cop showed up and arrested him. <laughs> but then something strange happened, which is that a mobster got in touch with him to apologize for the way the Green Mills manager <laughs> and bartender had uh, treated him, and the, this mobster said, I gave them both a damn good beating. Uh, and so the reporter thought, mm, it kind of seems like this mobster might own this place. Or at least have a piece of it. So can I ask, because I've heard all the stories my whole life, was this mobster Al Capone? No, it was, it was not Al Capone. <laughs> it was a guy named Ted Newberry who was a notorious member of the Bugs Moran gang, which uh, controlled the North Side. Uh, now, this is one of the reasons I'm a little skeptical about all those Capone stories, which is for most of the Prohibition era, Capone's mob was down on the South Side, and his other gang controlled the North Side. So it seems a little questionable that Capone would have been hanging out at the Green Mill. So Robert's been referring to something called the Green Mill Gardens. So how is that similar or different from the Green Mill that we know today? Well, in 1922, the Green Mill had an addition built. Um, it was basically sort of a C-shaped or U-shaped building with two wings facing Broadway, and they built in the middle part there. And then at the same time, they closed down the gardens, which was where the Uptown Theater was built. And so there was an entrance into the Green Mill Gardens venue in the back of the building, and you walked in at 4806 North Broadway, which is where the Fiesta Mexicana restaurant is today. Yeah, nice Mexican restaurant. I happened to be walking by there one day in 2008, and I noticed that Fiesta Mexicana had taken down their sign for some temporary repairs, and you could see written on the building, Green Mill Gardens. So this sign, which used to be the part of the entrance to this famous venue, is hidden behind the sign. And I said, what are the chances <laughs> that Robert is walking by the one day that they pulled the sign down? But that's why we get him to do WBEZ events. <laughs> There's no place that I would rather be than right here. Rednecks, white socks, and blue ribbon beer. 
So, Prohibition was the law of the land for 13 years, and right in the middle of that time, construction began on what many experts call the greatest movie palace ever built in the United States, the Uptown Theater. As you heard, that construction took away the garden part of the Green Mill Gardens. And also during that time, there was a big fire that charred a good chunk of the building. Yet somehow, through it all, the Green Mill survived and is still one of the coolest places to have a drink and listen to jazz anywhere in the country. Some guy on the phone says I'll be home soon Rednecks, white socks and blue ribbon beer. Coming up, Liz Garibay from the Chicago Museum jumps on stage. She'll tell us about Chicago's historic ties to taverns and beer. That's next. There's no place that I would rather be than right here. Rednecks, white socks, and blue ribbon beer. with more of Curious City's live event from Carol's Pub in April. And for the second half of the show, we welcomed Liz Garibay to the stage. She's an expert on beer and bar culture and the executive director of the Chicago Bruseum. What's the Bruseum, you ask? The world's first nonprofit cultural organization dedicated to sharing stories of how beer has played a role in humanity. Liz has worked with Curious City before on some tavern-related stories, including how old-style signs became a ubiquitous sight outside of bars around Chicagoland. But beer and tavern culture didn't suddenly appear in Chicago in the 20th century. It was around even before the city was officially born. So let's head down to Wolf Point, where the Chicago River splits into the north and south branch. Today, it's the corner of Wacker and Lake Street. And the hot happening bar in town is a Saugnash Tavern, which is in a hotel, kind of like, you know, the roadhouse concept. And uh, folks are going to the Saugnash, which is owned by Mark Bobien, who is known as being a great uh, entertainer. He was a fiddler. Um, you would go to the Saugnash to see and be seen. You'd have a good fiddle off, a good gambling game. And so, of course, when we're trying to figure out what we should do with this little village of Chicago, the people in charge say, hey, let's go talk about it at the bar, at the hot bar, Saugnash Tavern. So they throw back a few whiskeys, cider, uh, maybe some beer, and get nice and loopy like a proper Chicagoan would to make an important decision. And uh, <laughs> they vote. Should Chicago, this little village, become a township? And they do. And then in 1837, four years later, they go back to the Saugnash, do the same thing again, and uh, vote for this township to become a city. So the beginnings of Chicago as we know it are literally in the bowels of a bar, not once but twice. And so I think that whole idea becomes immediately ingrained in our DNA as Chicagoans. That's awesome. That is awesome. So yes, Chicago was literally born in a bar. But a couple of decades later, a guy who becomes mayor wants to turn off the taps. Who is this guy, Levi Boone? And what was the 
<laughs> oh, somebody's already the, booing it. Right. How to, I like that. Look at all these nerds. Somebody, 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 this is a WBEZ yeah. crowd, right? You've done okay. your research already. All right. all right. So who was Levi Boone, and what did he have to do with what was known as the Lager Beer Riot of 1855? By the late 1840s, early 1850s, you've got lots of German immigrants, you've got lots of other immigrants, and you already have anti-immigrant sentiments. And so we have a political party called the American Party, also known as the Know Nothing Party. And they're sort of taking over the entire nation and really kind of um, making a lot of headway politically. And so uh, Boone was part of that party and he was a nativist. He was a descendant of Daniel Boone, so a true pioneer, and that all these immigrants had no business. So Levy immediately decides to do two things that were very anti-immigrant. One is he decides to close taverns on Sundays. Right, back to this, back to this. And so when you're working uh, six days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day, you want to have a drink on your day off, naturally. And, and Germans were used to the idea of drinking on Sundays. Right. The other thing he does is that he um, raises liquor license fees from $50 per year to $300 per quarter. Right. Oh. So un not affordable. So what happens is um, uh, people are like, screw you, we're not doing that. And they stay open on Sundays, and all these arrests are made. And so... They were going to go to court uh, April 21st, 1855. And what happens is a lot of these different immigrant groups start to organize themselves, right? So you had Germans, you had Italians, you had everyone you can imagine. And even though many of these immigrants didn't speak English, they had somebody representing them to help organize them. And so they decide to riot. And they cross the Clark Street Bridge and Levy decides to spin the bridge. It was a uh, um, different kind of bridge than we have today. And yeah, but I said that that sounded a little bit like what Lori Lightfoot yeah. did a couple of years <laughs> I mean, ago. With put, put, putting, the, putting the bridge up to yeah. uh, stop the mayhem. you got to yeah. stop yeah. people. So people got really... How things change, how things <laughs> stay the same. Yeah, there, there's, there's more of that to come. And everyone storms City Hall. City Hall, by the way, has always been uh, on Clark Street where it is today, different building. Shots are fired, people are fighting, a German, uh, Peter Martin, dies, and chaos has ensued. But what ends up happening is that Levy Boone decides not to change those two laws, um, and the good guys end up winning. Power to the people. And, and what's, what's sort of most important about this incident is that you're talking about how these different immigrant groups really start to organize, and it's interesting that they started rallying together around beer, but, uh, you know, it's, it becomes uh, sort of a, an important cultural and political touchstone for the city. Yeah, I mean, there's two, I think, two major takeaways from this incident. First of all, it was the very first recorded moment of public disruption in uh, Chicago history. Two is that you have immigrants for the first time coming together and trying to make change. And I think probably for me, the most important part is what happens after that. So at this point in Chicago's history, our mayors are elected annually. And so Levy's up for re-election in 1856, and all of these immigrant groups that had organized to riot decide to stay organized because they're trying to encourage people to go vote. And so they do. And so Levy actually doesn't get re-elected. And so for me, this moment 
is really the moment where Chicago gets its identity as a political machine, right? This is where you doing something makes a difference and it really kind of continues to push that immigrant movement forward, the importance of immigrants, because you start getting a lot of these immigrants, brewery owners or bar owners, to run for aldermen and kind of get involved politically. In fact, our very first mayor, uh, William Ogden in 1837, way before that, he was an investor in the hops industry, and he was also an investor in Haas Sulzer, which later on became Little Diversity. Haas and Sulzer opened the first commercial brewery in Chicago in 1833. A few years later, they sold out to William Lill and Michael Diversity. Yes, the Diversity that the big street is named after. In the decades after the lager beer rights, Chicago grew, and so did our thirst for beer. And from that thirst sprang more than just new breweries. The booming beer industry, both locally and nationally, pushed Chicago to make all kinds of advances. New technology, from brewing methods to the use of refrigeration, were created or first implemented here in Chicago. New marketing techniques were put in place, from beautiful print ads and publications to Fancy mirrors and wall signs for saloons, breweries worked hard in this era to create brand loyalty. And even something we were already famous for here in Chicago, architecture, got a beer-related push, with firms cropping up that concentrated solely on designing new and modern breweries. But here's what I wanted to know. For all the suds being brewed and for all the advances in and around the industry, why is it that the big national brands come from places like Milwaukee and St. Louis and not Chicago? At Carol's, Liz told us she gets that question a lot. You know, these heritage brands that we all know. And it's not that Chicago didn't have beer by... The, the height, 1890s into the early 1900s, we had 80 to 90 some breweries, which was a lot back then. In the 1880s, as a result of all that stuff from the 1870s, uh, Chicago breweries are brewing about 800,000 barrels of beer. That's about 34 million gallons, right? And that just keeps growing by decade. So here's the best part about it. We're drinking it all. Right. Chicago breweries. There's not enough yeah. to actually not send out. To export. Right. Uh, um, there, we have a lot of bre- Sipes was a brewery from the 18 started in the 1850s and went, went well into the 1930s. They were the biggest brewery at one point in the nation. Right. So we had breweries that were here and we were just drinking it all. So there was never a need to really go into another market. Right. And so. That's why you don't hear about something. If you think about, obviously, Budweiser or Miller or Pabst, you have these Milwaukee, St. Louis breweries that are giving all of their people their beer, but they also are recognizing how much Chicago is drinking. It's close enough, and they send beer to Chicago, and guess what? We're drinking that, too. The news is out all over. I want to wrap up the podcast with part of the evening's discussion that was, well, a touchy subject for Liz. It had to do with the evolution and use of the term dive bar. So the first, the first time we ever see the word dive bar is um, in a publication from about 1871. And we don't see it again until about 10 years later, and it's in Harper's Weekly. 
and it's really referring to opium dens. Opium was hot back then. Don't know if you know. Uh, and we don't see it again. Bring them back. Yeah. <laughs> we don't see it again uh, until about 1886, referring to taverns. And what happened was you come into an establishment, and you're having a great time. You're throwing back a few. You get to that point where you probably shouldn't have another, right? But we all been there. People are throwing back more and more and more. And so customers would fall asleep on the bar, right? And so the barkeep would have to grab the customer and kind of just put them in the basement <laughs> to sleep it off. You didn't want to put them outside because that would be even worse so people would see it, right? So you'd let them sleep it off. And so literally your customers were taking a dive. And so <clears throat> the more sleepy customers, the divier your place is. <laughs> Right? And so it was a thing in the 80s and 1880s and 90s. Um, so that's how this concept of a not so nice, rough and tumble drinking establishment came to be. But people change, things change, neighborhoods change, cities change, we all evolve, words change. So I have issue with the word dive bar because it's out of context today. For me, dive bar is a negative connotation from history and it also I feel like we all just are making assumptions about the people inside and so this is not a dive bar this is a neighborhood bar right I'm a regular at what some people call a dive bar but it's my neighborhood bar I mean the owner is an artist and he painted a, a painting that says world's greatest dive bar and we have arguments about this constantly because I'm like this is not a dive bar this is just a great neighborhood joint and so which place are you talking about it's called the Old Town Ale House. Um, but, but <laughs> so for me, it's really about how words change and things change through time. And so I don't really think about these places as dives where I just consider them more important neighborhood establishments. So what are the big takeaways from the evening? Well. Uptown's been a unique place to drink and hang out for more than 150 years. And the Green Mill's been around in one form or another for nearly that long. The city of Chicago was born in a bar, and the city's famed penchant for politics and activism sprang from different immigrant groups banding together over access to beer. Oh, and just because your neighborhood tavern isn't fancy, you shouldn't call it a dive bar. Thanks to everyone at Carol's for making us feel so welcome. Thanks to Asha Lee and the WBEZ Live Events team. Thanks to our musical guests, the Hoyle Brothers, who you've heard throughout this podcast. Thanks to Tim Nordberg for making me and the guests and the band sound so great. And thank you for listening and loving all the great stories we tell about Chicago. Keep an eye on WBEZ.org slash Curious City for our next live event and all our great online content. Curious City is supported by the Conant Family Foundation and is produced by me and Joe DeSalle. Adriana Cardona-Magigat is Curious City's reporter. Maggie Sivet is the digital and engagement producer. Marie Mendoza is our podcast fellow, and our editors are Johanna Zorn and Susie Ahn. I'm Jason Mark. Thanks for listening. Now I'm a branded man out in the cold. So
sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown.